Hey, welcome to episode 93 of How to Our Another Carfest Sparfest special. Here we go. Carfest is a not-for-profit well-being music food superstar and motorcar festival that has so far raised circa £25 million for UK children's charities. Check out what's happening this year by going to carfest.org. Carfest.org, that is, where you'll see our best ever lineup of guest hosts and rock and rollers, yet many of them staying with us the whole weekend, including the likes of Richard Hammond, Rob Bride and Jimmy Carr. Lee Mack, Bryony Gordon, Eddie Izzard, Rick Astley, Craig David, Russell and Laura Brand, Texas McFly, The Actual Village People, Alex Horn, Angela Hartnett, Matt Tebbett, Michael Keynes, Atul Kutcher, Freya Ridings, Ben Miller, Dr. Rungan Chatterjee, Dr. Reepy, The Happy Pair, Melanie Sykes, The Feelings, Sophie Ellis-Bexter, Razorlight, Gokwan, Reef, The Bootleg Beatles, and only Peter Flipping Andre, plus all the amazing car content, of course. Go to carfest.org now and come join us this August bank holiday week weekend. All right, from that very event, let's cue a conversation, a fascinating conversation. This one is entitled Future Tense. Why anxiety is good for you with Dr. Tracy Dennis Tiwari. Discussing her brilliant book, she discusses the whole of anxiety as a healthy emotion dealing with anxiety disorders and so much more. Mental health and anxiety disorders are on the rise despite the multiple resources for help and discussing the negative effect this might have had on society. I promise you, you will not regret this listen in which there lies many great lessons. Future tense, why anxiety is good for you with Dr. Tracy Dennis Tuari. Enjoy. Wow, what an introduction. Dr. Tracy. Hello, Liz. So nice to be with you. I had to write down your credentials because they are so amazing. (laughs) You've literally given your the last 20 years of your life to yes. this subject, haven't you? Yes, I have. Yes. I, I'm a clinical psychologist by training. And then, then I retrained in neuroscience and really went into the science aspect of it, really wanted to do research on mental health and emotional health. And so that's been uh, 20 years. <laughs> and <laughs> that he, happened. I know. And here you are in England. Yes. How are we treating you? Are we oh, good to you? Wonderfully. My um, I, my husband and son and daughter, who are right in front, came along. <laughs> it's a vacation now as well. And I think everyone wants to move to London. So well done. <laughs> <laughs> What's the most British thing that you've done so far? Oh, we had a very nice high tea at the Goring. Oh, yeah. <laughs> here is quite, quite a... <laughs> You don't get more British than that. Oh, no. So we had a lovely time. Stonehenge, magical. Brilliant. Leyline. I'm a proponent of the ley lines theory of Stonehenge. You felt the magic there. So. Oh, I've never been. You've been here a week and you've, you've done more than me already and I've lived here for 30 the kids, years. The kids help you do that when you're showing yeah. them around. So we're here to talk about your book, Future Tense, yes. how anxiety can actually be good for you. Yes. Who would have thought that would be the same sentence? No, and, and, it, and the title definitely was meant to be a little bit thought-provoking and challenging because, you know, I've been a mental health professional. Um, actually, um, officially, I think I was telling you earlier, earlier since September 11th, 2001. It was on that morning that I actually defended my dissertation. So this was a moment in history that, you know, mental health after that, I think became even more of a focus um, because we, you know, we saw that uh, traumatic uh, event for the whole world, as well as New York, where I, where I was living with my, with my then boyfriend, um, now husband. Um, (laughs) And what what I realized as a, a brand new psychologist is that, okay, we have great treatments, but we need to do more scientific work. We need to, you know, really understand what makes us tick. And anxiety became a strong focus of mine because anxiety is both a human emotion um, that 
is healthy and also an anxiety disorder. And then you have anxiety disorders. Um, and so I thought, well, you know, emotions are powerful and useful, but we really need to beat back this crisis of anxiety disorders that even 20 years ago we were starting to see is on the rise. Fast forward, um, we've been doing this work. We have great treatments, great wellness practices, you know, all these things. But at least in the United States and I think all over the world, anxiety disorders and mental health disorders are on the rise. So how can that be if we have great solutions? And so I really wrote Future Tense as a way to unpack that mystery um, and to really kind of, I think, deal with a sense of failure on my part, because I think that we mental health professionals have actually unintentionally done harm in how we've started talking to people about mental health and well-being. And so I think that this book is also my way of trying to, to tell a different story about mental health, but really with anxiety being the prime example. Well, that's what we were talking about before. Um, if we use it as a positive, at what point has it become a negative? Because if we always look back into history, cavemen, yes. if it was a positive to bring a success, at what point have we decided this is a bad feeling? Yeah, there's so, uh, so I think a, a good place to start is to know that we are all born anxious. Now, what we've come to believe is that when we feel anxious, it's a danger signal that something's wrong. But we are all born anxious because anxiety is the feeling we get when we look into the future and we see that something bad could happen. So say uh, you're waiting for doctor's results to come back. You could have cancer, but you might not have cancers. Anxiety is that feeling we get when we know that we still have hope, but that there's also something negative on the horizon. So when we think of anxiety as an emotion, we start to see, okay, well, um, if it's normal, we can, we can handle it. But what we've started to believe is that it's dangerous and damaging. And so it's led us into this vicious cycle of anxiety. I call them the three Fs. You feel it. And sometimes it's hard to feel because it's very, it can be in our bodies and our minds, but you feel it and you take it as a danger signal. And what do you do when something's dangerous and you fear it is you start to flee from it. And when we flee and avoid these experiences of anxiety, it always makes them worse. So anything, so if I ask you, uh, or tell you rather, don't think of a white bear, (laughs) right? That's the old trick. You're immediately going to think of a white bear. And the same goes for emotions. As soon as we try to press them down, as soon as we say, don't feel that dangerous thing, they come back stronger than ever. So when we avoid and get in this vicious cycle, it amplifies anxiety. And the second thing is it's an opportunity cost because anxiety as an emotion, we can build anxiety skills. So we're born with anxiety. We're born anxious. And the job, the messy work of being human is to learn how to be anxious in the right way. We have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's, we have to be, but that's hard. I mean, that's like me selling broccoli to you to say, here, anxiety is this thing. Let me tell you why it's good for you. It's very difficult to hear that because, you know, the other part of your question is how do we know when it's become an anxiety disorder? When it's an anxiety disorder, it's not that we're feeling anxiety. It's that the ways we're coping with anxiety have gotten in the way of living a full life, of loving, working, playing. So um, if you, for example, have social anxiety, a social 
social anxiety disorder, you might stop going to work. You might stop going to school. You feel fear humiliation. So, um, you know, I might be anxious about talking to an amazing actress on the spa stage, but if, you know, and, and I cope with that feeling. Um, but if I started to avoid, you know, try to avoid that feeling, if I started to cope by say, turning down the opportunity to speak with you today, it would start to have a snowball effect. Yeah. So the only time that we're diagnosed with an anxiety disorder is that when those ways of coping are actually causing functional impairment, it's getting in the way of your life. So when you think about it that way, we actually don't have a crisis of anxiety. We have a crisis of how we're coping with anxiety. And I wrote the book to suggest if we see that vicious cycle, you feel it, you fear it, and you flee from it and believe and change our mindset just a little that we can create a virtuous cycle of anxiety. I believe that will change everything. And we'll be, whether we have an anxiety disorder or regular day-to-day anxiety, the solution remains the same. We need to create a virtuous cycle of anxiety in our lives. And we can. And there's science-based ways to do it. Well, this is going to be the argument, isn't it? Because anxiety can be such a, a spectrum. Yes. And some people can literally be like paralyzed by it. Do you still feel that this is the core where we need to start whatever level anxiety you're at? A hundred percent, because the way to be anxious in the right way to have a virtuous cycle is is also three useful uh, letters. <laughs> That's the three L's. So the three F's. The three sorry, F's the, and the three L's. <laughs> I need mnemonics in my life, so I try to do it that way. So the three F's, that's the vicious cycle. The three L's are that you listen to the anxiety. You tune in to anxiety as information and preparation. I'll unpack that in a second. You listen, you leverage which means you can use anxiety for purpose because it helps us navigate uncertainty in our lives. The flip side of anxiety is actually hope because that future, you know, speaking to a wonderful person on a stage, I could bomb it. It could be a disaster. But when I'm anxious, I'm still in it to win it. I know that I could do well. Yeah. I need to prepare for it. Yeah. And so anxiety prompts us to work hard, to get, you know, focus. It Maybe our heart is beating a little faster. It's pumping oxygen to my brain <laughs> so I can think, <laughs> you know, so it can serve us. We can leverage it with practice like any skill. But then the third L is we need to also know when to let go because sometimes anxiety is is too kind of it just free floating. It is overwhelming. We can't white knuckle it through all the time. Mm-hmm. And mental health professionals, self-help professionals will sometimes make us feel that there's this checklist. And if we don't check off 20 out of 20 boxes on the checklist and do something good for ourselves every day, and we, yeah. it's a failure as if mental health was somehow a binary of you have it or you don't. Like mental health, it's not the absence of discomfort emotional distress. It's the ability to live with that and work through it and sometimes fall down and get back up again. That is mental health. This is a problem with perfectionism, isn't it? Because we can't fail when we're perfectionists. And I feel that I've seen a a difference where it's on the rise, perfectionism. People want to be, I don't know whether it's a social media thing or, and is that driving the anxiety? I think there's so many factors, but perfectionism, you know, it's, it's not just wanting to do well. Perfectionism is that you're holding yourself to this standard of flawlessness Mm -hmm. that you either are at 110% or you failed. Yeah. There's nothing in between. And that is punishing. It, It actually leads to worse 
performance. So it's sort of like the law of diminishing returns. You never know when it's good enough. Yeah. So you often do further, 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 and you end up doing some worse than you would have before. It's associated with higher levels of, um, you know, problems with uh, substance use. It's when you're perfectionistic, depression, anxiety disorders, it really does not serve us. But yet anxiety um, is really part of perfectionism because perfectionism is a way to avoid anxiety because we think, oh, if I just am perfect in every way, I won't have to feel that discomfort. Yeah. So it's a way of avoiding anxiety when it comes down to it. So I like to think of anxiety as actually leaning us towards a better form of perfectionism, which I call excellencism. It's actually um, uh, the psychologist, uh, Canadian psychologist, Patrick Gaudreau, coined the term. And it means not going for perfect, but knowing that you can go for excellent and that you have to make mistakes along the way. So that, um, you know, the, the inventor, um, Thomas Edison from the United States, he said, he was an excellencist. He said, I haven't failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that don't work yet. <laughs> now, anxiety actually helps us be uh, more excellencist. Yeah. Because when we're anxious and we're thinking of that future, we're thinking of there's a bad thing that maybe has happened or could happen rather. And there's a good thing that could happen. It may, so it makes us more persistent to make our dreams come true. To keep on hoping for what we want. So um, if I know, you know, I have a, and my son's in the audience, so he might be a little annoyed with me that I'm saying this, but <laughs> sorry, Covey. <laughs> he had a big math test one day. And I know um, a lot of students just a few days ago got some big results back. So it's very anxiety provoking time. Yeah. He had a big math test coming up and he studied and he said, okay. And he, and he cares about math. He likes math. And he came to me and he said one day, you know, I'm studying very hard, but I'm feeling really anxious about this test. Uh, you're, you wrote a book about anxiety. You, you know, come on, you should have some solution for me here. He, he said it more nicely than that. But, um, and I said, okay, well, if let's use the three L's, right? So first of all, what is your anxiety telling you? If you listen to what, what's in your mind, he said, well, you know, I'm feeling all these feelings, but if I just take a moment, what's rising to the surface is that, uh, I, there's this one type of problem I'm not so good at. Like this one thing, I, I just am not sure how to do that particular math problem. Um, I said, oh, okay. So that's good information. Um, and I also hear that you care about getting it right. And said, okay. Yeah. It's information you care. So, and then, so then you leverage it. What do you do with that information? Well, I guess I could study 10 or 15 more minutes on that one problem that I'm not clear about. So he studied, he did 10 or 15 minutes, not, not excessive. Um, and he came back and I said, so how are you feeling? He said, well, my anxiety went down. So he was getting information again. So anxiety, information and preparation. He took the information, prepared him to pra you know, practice and study some more. He tuned back in, the anxiety had gone down. I guess he's on the right track because he had learned that thing that was sort of in the back of his mind. And then once he got to that space, he needed to let go. So if he kept on worrying, kept on. So we talked about, okay, you're feeling better about it. Maybe now's a good time to stop studying, get a good night's sleep. Yeah. And how can you let go of it? And he has things he likes to do. He loves um, the, the card uh, game Magic the Gathering, which oh. there might be some magic players <laughs> out there. I don't know. Um, you know, he, you know, chat with his friends, maybe, you know, something to relax. He, he did something to let go of that anxiety. So we can put that in just small, small ways into practice, whether we're having a day-to-day -day anxiety or even when we're struggling with an anxiety disorder, therapy 
patriarchy teaches us to do exactly the same thing. So I feel this message applies at the same time I acknowledge how much suffering anxiety disorders do cause. So it's a mixture, isn't it? Worry, nerves, Mm -hmm. anxiety. Mm -hmm. Would you class them all as the same thing? Anxiety, yeah, it has all those bits, right? Because it's our bodies, it's our minds. Worrying is sort of the thinking part of anxiety. And in a way, worry is just our attempt to control the future. Um, Again, thinking about how anxiety really sends us, makes us us into these future time travelers in in, in the mind. um, Where, you know, we talked before about uh, when you and I were chatting behind about sort of what's the prehistoric function of anxiety? Is it just the same as fear? And I talked about the sort of cave bear issue, you know? So (laughs) so when you're, um, you know, prehistoric people, there were cave bears, presumably, you know, wandering around. If it's about to, you know, eat you, that's fear. So you're prepared. You know that you have certain and present danger in the moment. And it prepares so you to different. fight or that's, take flight. Yeah, 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 that's right. So that's fear. But anxiety is the feeling you get if you're wandering around as an early human and you see a cave and you're like, hmm, cave bears sometimes live in caves. So I don't know that there's a cave bear in there. There could be. That's the bad thing that could happen that hasn't happened yet. But it might just be a great shelter and I might survive one more day if I can figure out how to check for a cave bear without getting eaten. Yeah. So all of a sudden anxiety is this is this force of innovation in human evolution. So it allows us to imagine and prepare for that future, whether it's cave bears or work <laughs> or relationships. And so that's why anxiety, I think we would still be living in caves if it weren't for anxiety. Because it really capitalizes on this triumph of human evolution, which is to simulate and imagine this future, plan and prepare for what you want that future to be, and then work for it and figure it out and persist. Wow. And to write a book like this, have you ever, do you suffer anxiety? Have you ever suffered anxiety? Because you sometimes have to feel, you experience it to write something like this. I have suffered anxiety in my life. When I was younger as a teenager, my real challenge was clinical depression. So I was clinically depressed when I was a teenager and I did have a panic attack or two, I remember, but really my struggle was not anxiety per se. Um, But then when I became a psychologist and really thought about what are the emotions that we struggle with the most, anxiety really is the crisis of our time in the sense that it has everything to do with uncertainty and what what describes our times now as much as uncertainty, especially even before the pandemic, but especially now, you know, we've, we've heard this phrase, the age of anxiety. It was based on a W.H. Auden poem. And that was right after World War II that he wrote that poem. Again, at a time of intense uncertainty, especially for uh, Britons and Europeans. Yeah. So anxiety is this word that we use to make sense of our uncertain and, you know, and sometimes frightening, but also hopeful future, because it was also after World War II that so many revolutions happened that were both good and bad, but changes in technology in, in the United States, that was the huge growth of the middle class and of invention of creation, the arts burgeoned after world war II. So when we think of anxiety as possibility, as frightening and as difficult and as bad as that feels sometimes it's also potential and creativity. And all of that lives in that same uncomfortable space. We just have to know that anxiety feels bad for a reason. It doesn't mean we're broken. We shouldn't pathologize ourselves if we feel it. We don't have to feel I'm anxious and therefore I have PTSD or it just doesn't work that way. We can work with it and build those skills like we do physical fitness skills. Yeah. 
Why do you think it is on the rise then? If we have all this science, we have all these ways to learn about the brain then, what, what is it that you think is making it go up? Well, this is, uh, this is the mystery and this is the, really the purpose of my book. I believe, without denigrating how difficult anxiety disorders at all, I've devoted my life to, to trying to help them. Um, I think it's our mindset about anxiety that we have to, again, it's that, it's that vicious cycle. When we fear it and flee from it and avoid it, we will make it worse. And all of these great solutions out there will not work as well. And it's an opportunity cost because if we avoid it, we press it down, we just try to numb it. If yeah. all we aspire to is to be comfortably numb, we cannot build those skills of persistence, of innovation, and of coping with it when it really does become overwhelming, which it does because anxiety stinks. There's no, as yeah. much as I'm seeing, you know, as, as much as I'm trying to really articulate the science of the important, crucial, good aspects of it, it still is a huge burden to many people and it does not feel good at all. But it is part and parcel of being human. It is not, it's a feature of being human. It is not a bug. It is an opportunity for us. I was going to say, is it classed as a disease or if it's natural to us, do you still class it as a disease? So anxieties, and this is where it becomes confusing. And I think why the language of anxiety is so important. Anxiety is an emotion. That's why we're all born anxious. Yeah. We have to have anxiety. Well, babies have separation anxiety. They've it's got it expected. straight away. It's expected. <laughs> and then we expect them to be scared of the dark and then we yeah. expect there to be stranger danger and that is normal so we are all born anxious again the trick it's the messy work of being human yes but the trick is to learn to be anxious in the right way and build skills but that's the emotion of anxiety and it's on the spectrum from you know the little the butterflies in our stomach all the way to really intensely anxious which all of us have experienced but then there are anxiety disorders and those are medical disorders that you diagnose through a very specific diagnostic set of diagnostic criteria. And again, it is when the way we cope with anxiety is getting in the way. Things like avoidance, things like um, re-experiencing, uh, you know, if, if, if it's a trauma-based disorder like PTSD, which is a trauma-based disorder that's a little distinct, you have to have re-experiencing of that trauma. You have to have very overactivated physiology without a way to bring it back down. You have to have a series of symptoms that is really about coping with those difficult feelings. So, there, there is a link, but they're definitely distinct. And when we believe anxiety can be our ally, even though we need to negotiate with it, we will start telling the difference within ourselves and trusting ourselves to know the difference yeah. between day-to-day -day struggles and then what is really getting in the way of a help, healthy and happy life. So do you believe that we should medicate anxiety or would, do you think there's a way to do it without medication? There are definitely ways to do it without medication. I think medication, and this is what the science tells us, it should be... Um, a, a kind of a la not not a last resort, but it should not be the first line of defense. In the United States, we have a serious problem with overprescription of anti-anxiety meds. Um, you, you know, in in the states, we sometimes call it popping a Zanny, which is Xanax, where we it's so easy to get a Xanax uh, prescription. Um, the third le leading cause of overdose deaths in the United States are benzodiazepines, and they're right after opioids. Oh wow! And so it's this, and it, there's a thread there, I think that we're constantly trying to dull our pain. Yes. And we have pain. I, you know, it's real pain. But when our first line of defense is to take 
these dangerous medications without proper knowledge that's given to us and taking them too long, then it starts to work against us. And the best way to use benzodiazepines or other anti-anxiety meds is in combination with cognitive behavioral therapies, which are great gold standard treatments. Think of meds like, um, you know, giving a person a fish, they'll eat for a day to use the kind of biblical adage. CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy is teaching a person to fish and they'll eat for a lifetime. So that's the skill building. Sometimes we need medication to bring ourselves to a state where we can benefit from those treatments. And so I would I never say, what level? shame someone for using a benzodiazepine, but it should be temporary. But what level do they actually work? I've never taken them, but do they actually get rid of it? Or is no, it, is it no, a small No, because percentage? anxiety is not the problem. So they're still taking <laughs> no. it and they're still feeling because we terrible. Can. No, that's right. <laughs> well, the, the, this is the fascinating thing. when And we just default to this language. Oh, you're feeling anxious? Better make it go away. Yeah. It doesn't get rid of anxiety. It numbs you for a time. And if and sometimes, again, it, it, it reduces the arousal, the distress, so that you can find other ways of coping. Okay, just taking a pause to tell you about AG1, also supporting this particular podcast. AG1, I'm asked all the time about the one thing I do to take care of my health. If I could pick only just one product, it would be foundational nutrition. And AG1 is a top foundational nutrition product. I can't think of any other daily routine that pays off as well as AG1, according to people that I really look up to who really know their stuff. AG1 is recommended by such luminaries as Rich Roll, the amazing professor, Dr. Andrew. Schieberman, Tim Ferriss, and our one, our only Dr. Rangan Chatterjee. AG1 was created in 2010 and it's helped millions of mornings begin on a healthier foundation ever since. My wife takes it, I take it, even our 14-year-old son Noah takes it now. He swears by it. AG1 is not only a high-quality all-in-one solution for daily foundational nutrition, it also saves you time, confusion, and money compared to individual supplements that can add up to a small fortune. AG1 replaces your multivitamin, probiotic, and much more in one simple drinkable habit. AG1 is great bang for my buck as it replaces a lot of these other supplements, like a daily multivitamin, minerals, pre and probiotics for my gut health, adaptogens and a greens blend, literally all in one scoop of powder. I think there's 75 different supplements in each scoop. Science-driven formulation of vitamins, probiotics and whole food source nutrients. AG1 is raising the standard for quality in the supplement category. Just one daily serving gives me the comprehensive foundational nutrition I need. Go to drinkag1.com slash how to wow. That's drinkag1.com slash how to wow. Give it a go. Check it out. Let us know how it lands. And now back to the wow. It doesn't get rid of anxiety because anxiety is a feature of being human. We cannot eradicate it. It just, it's not going anywhere. Yeah. So we have to learn to live with it. And the problem with benzodiazepines, particularly, that's that this brought this major class of anti-anxiety meds, is that not only do they um, have overdose risk, very high overdose risk, and synergistic overdose risks. If you drink alcohol and take a benzo, you can die. Oh, We've wow. had major overdose deaths in our country with that combination. But they actually change the neurochemistry of your brain in some unhelpful ways, so that now the your baseline of anxiety starts to rise. Oh, right. With, with long-term use of benzos. So, you so now you end up more anxious at the end of it when yeah. you cease using them if you haven't built skills to manage the anxiety. So this is where people get into these, again, these vicious cycles because all we are given or all we know to do is avoid anxiety or suppress it. And I, what, I'm, what I am trying to advocate for in my book, really, is to say, no, we can do much more than that. 
and it will help us more in the long run. We can listen to it. It's valuable. It helps us prepare. We can leverage it and then we can let it go when we need to. But we have to live with it before we can have to go through before we go around. Do you think if we teach our children earlier, it will help them? They will understand it then later in adult life. It's the best gift we can give our children because, of course, every parent and, you know, we are parents. Many people here are parents. Our impulse is to make our children feel happy. We only want good things for them. We just want to wrap them in cotton wool, don't we? we? Take the do we ever? Away. Oh, my gosh, do we ever? <laughs> but it's the greatest disservice we can do to them. It's sort of saying, it's sort of like, you know, we treat them as fragile, but a, a china teacup is fragile. We, we, you know, you drop it, it breaks in a million pieces. You can never put it back together again. Yeah. Kids are not like that. Kids are anti-fragile, which means this is a term you may have remember the uh, book from uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb from about a decade or so ago. Uh, this term anti-fragility, it means you grow stronger from challenge. And our immune system is anti-fragile because unless you're exposed to bacteria and viruses, your immune system can't function. You'll be the boy in the plastic bubble. Yeah. Muscles are anti-fragile. If you don't strain and work them, we know we, we want our kids to do sport and we want them to, you know, work hard and, you know, run that extra mile. And, you know, you know, you have to put in five hours of football practice. I don't know. I know, you know uh, but we don't hesitate to let our children rise to that challenge. Emotions are the same way. Why are we not allowing them to rise to that challenge? Well, because we're, we're, we fear for them. We're anxious about their anxiety. We feel uncomfortable when we see them uncomfortable. Well, if first thing we say is don't cry don't, don't cry, cry. Yeah. don't even let them feel no what they want to feel and it's a and it's an opportunity cost in the long run um there's a treatment that just came out of the united states just a few years ago it's a new treatment it's called supportive parenting for anxious children um ellie Leibowitz uh, is a researcher out of the yale child study center and they started doing um new uh treatments for children who are clinically anxious who have social anxiety disorder which means they're afraid to go to school they they can't sleep alone it, you know, in their bed at night, they yeah. have these real fears of the social world outside. Typically, we'd give them cognitive behavioral therapy, which can be very, very effective. Um, this group uh, did a study where they didn't give the kid any therapy. They didn't give the kids any re- uh, therapy at all. They only gave the parents therapy. And oh, what wow. what was the therapy? They taught them one simple skill, which is to be a supportive parent, which means don't accommodate your children's anxieties. Don't let them stay home every day from school. Don't let them sleep in your bed every night. Gradually, you don't have to throw them into the deep end, but gradually, supportively teach them that they can go to school. Help them build the skills to manage and go through that anxiety and to learn that it will go down in the end. Oh, wow. And here's some things you can do. And so supportively helping them through rather than around anxiety. And after six weeks of just the parents being taught these skills, these clinically anxious children, half of them are no no longer clinically anxious. They showed reductions in symptoms comparable to if the, when kids themselves get therapy, but they receive no therapy. So they just, (laughs) and that's not to parent blame. We're all, we, you know, we've all done something like that, but it's to show us that our kids are not fragile and we are not fragile. We can help our kids through these, even the most difficult forms of anxiety. We can help them build those skills. They can do it. We're just projecting ourselves on the mile way. We, we feel safe. We want them to be safe. All well-intentioned. Always well-intentioned, but you're absolutely right. You have to let them learn. 
They even have from to. that age. They have to. It's the it's the greatest gift we can give them. What is the first? If you do ask suffering anxiety, what's the first tip you could give somebody? Where do you start? You, I, th- I think in, in some ways, you know, this book is, it's a meta self-help book or it's, it's, or maybe I don't think it's an anti self-help book because it really means that. Um, but I think the first place to start is throw out every mental health checklist they've ever given you. Just pause, you know, they're beautiful self-help books out there. I love 90% of them, but put them on the shelf for a time when it comes to anxiety and just consider for a moment that when you feel anxious, you don't have to react to suppress it or fix it or to prevent it because it's going to come around the bend and destroy you. Pause for a moment. Take a breath. Usually I take a breath. Um, And here's a good example. Often I wake up, it's usually around four or 5 a.m., with oh, wow. worries. I don't know if we, anyone else has that. <laughs> mine's 2 a.m. <laughs> oh, that's a tougher one. So mine's usually 4 a.m. And I'll wake up and it'll just be this yucky stew of feelings, right? And there'll be thoughts and there'll be worries. When you use the three L's, the listen, leverage, and let go, you, you have to take a pause. You have to give yourself that space and not panic about your feelings, right? And just say, okay, I'm going to breathe for 30 seconds. Just breathe. Okay. Everyone knows how to breathe. We've been taught up the yin-yang how to breathe, right? Because yeah. there's great self-help out there. Yeah. So breathe for a moment and then see what rises to the surface. Now, here's a, going to be an embarrassing story with my daughter, who's also in the, in the audience. So, so one morning I woke up at 4 a.m. Sorry, Nundi. Um, and I was worrying. I realized when I just let myself sit with it, the thought that rose was that I had had a fight with my daughter the night before. And I yelled at her and we just disagreed. It was just yucky. And I didn't, I wasn't saying and doing the things that that I really felt I wanted to do. I wasn't sure what to do. And when I realized that, then I could leverage it because now it's that information becomes preparation. And so I made a plan that I was going to say two or three things. I sort of planned it in my head. Okay, I'm going to say X, Y, Z to Nundi when I wake up in the morning. And I think if I do that, you know, I just sort of played it out of my head. I used that imagination, that triumph of, you know, it wasn't cave bears in the cave. It was my daughter. (laughs) You're not a cave bear, Nundi. It was my daughter and us having a conversation, you know, having a conversation. And once I made that plan, my anxiety went down. The worries soothed. And that's how I knew I was on the right track because it is information. Anxiety has to feel bad because it makes us sit up and pay attention. And then when it goes down, we know we can, oh, something, there's a good action that I've planned. It spurs us to action. Yes. And so then with that little bit more peace. I was able to go back to sleep for another little bit. Thank I needed that extra hour. I got up. I, we had our conversation. It was a great, you know, it wasn't a perfect conversation, but, but it helped. Fixed day, Yeah. And so that's a very, and we can, pre- that's a small example, but multiply that times a hundred. And all of a sudden we're, we're, we're being anxious in the right way. We're gaining skills. Now, sometimes I get knocked on my butt and I just have to go to sleep and hope I wake up better, you know, feeling better in the morning. And yeah. we all need those reset buttons. We also know that when we let go of anxiety, there are things that we can do that make us be in the present moment. So you leave that future tense behind and immerse yourself in the present. Maybe, you know, I imagine since you're an actress, I bet acting is that sort of an experience for you when you're in that flow and you're oh, in that immediate, moment. Oh, immediate nerves. And that's that's why I asked you, is it nerves or anxiety? Because acts is the first thing we say now. I'm so anxious. Right. And it's become the word, the new right. word. But, but when you nerves. do it, does it and feel better when you're in it? And absolutely. It? And if no. you've not got that feeling, you feel like you're not performing as good. You almost <laughs> need that for the adrenaline. The, yeah. And it's, it's funny, as actors, I think we use that as a positive. That's right. But, right, because if you change... probably not your, in my life. I'm probably like, oh, I'm anxious about something no, else. I know, but it takes practice, right? Yeah. So, And you as a, as an artist, 
have honed that skill in this context yes. of your craft. And so if we think of anxiety as all of us as sort of alchemists of anxiety or like, you know, as artists of anxiety, we can say, okay, wait a second. When I tend to feel anxious about work or about school, it's because I care about it. It's because now I, I can interpret it as preparation and information. Sometimes it's telling me something's not quite right and I can correct course. And then all of a sudden it's this incredible ally. It's this you do have to negotiate with it like any ally. Yeah. But all of a sudden we flip the script on anxiety and it helps us have more of the virtuous cycle, the three L's, <laughs> instead of the vicious cycle, the three F's, where we're constantly just pushing it away and fleeing from it. it that, that's, that's a losing proposition. You will never win yeah. when you're in that vicious cycle, whether you have an anxiety disorder or if you have day-to-day -day anxiety. Well, exactly. It's going it's to spill over at some point. It's energy. It needs to go somewhere like a wave. Exactly. You have to ride it. You have to yes. swim. You have to surf. Yeah. <laughs> and was there anything in this book? I mean, we, we learn so much over, you know, a month could change. You could probably find out so much information within a month that you keep researching and researching. Did the book stay the same as you wanted it from the second you got the idea or has it adapted throughout writing it? Oh, it's evolved so much. So, <laughs> I, I, you know, so it started out as a book about teen anxiety because, you know, I'm also a developmental psychologist and kids are kind of at the center of, I mean, they're the gateway to the future. Yes, the they are the, the future. future. <laughs> and we spend a lot of time, especially with teens, maligning them. Right. Kind of implicitly and explicitly telling them that they're emotionally crippled screen addicted uh, slackers <laughs> you know all yeah, of this you know yeah. this is a sort of generational rift that's really grown up and and so I really and I think they are suffering some of these these wrong stories and mindsets about anxiety even greater than than other groups of people I think and we see the rates of anxiety disorders in teens and teen girls in particular on the rise so I wrote it originally for for teens and then My publisher and I, we thought, we, you know, we can go wider than this. And still, you know, there's a big focus on parenting and kids in the book. Yeah. But we're going wider to say, you know, anxiety has to do with creativity. Anxiety has to do, yes, with disorders as well. But anxiety, so we went wider. wider. I have to say my big anxiety provoking moment, um, in addition to just the pandemic and other, was um, in, when I got the book deal to write the book. Um, about three weeks later, the pandemic happened. So literally the book was official, oh, wow. but then everything shut down. And my publisher said, okay, go write it. But I'm busy. Everything's collapsing. Like, uh, I'll give you feedback when I can. So I wrote one chapter, two ch I wrote six chapters. I mean, six chapters over eight months. Oh, wow. Finally got feedback from the publisher. And she said, this is terrible. <laughs> this is trash. I mean, she didn't say this was trash or rubbish, but it really, it was, it, I just, I didn't need to read too far between the lines. And she said, you need to hire an outside editor. <sighs> Um, which means if any of you have published books, you, your editor at the publisher does not actually really, unless you're actually British publishers are better with this. And my wonderful publisher, Piatkis, uh, they're wonderful editors, but many other editors don't want to edit. They want it sort of done. Yeah. So what you do is you get an outside editor to help you kind of formulate the book and do whatever, everything from ghostwriting to just structuring it. All right. Yeah. So I was connected with a wonderful editor, Bill Tonelli, um, back in the U.S., And he said, let's throw out everything you wrote. Just start from scratch. He said, I know nothing about this topic. I'm moderately intelligent. He's very intelligent, but he said, I'm moderately intelligent. I know nothing. Explain it to me. Oh, wow. And this is another thing about anxiety. It's about community too, because by having to explain these ideas to Bill, 
the book became so much stronger, I think, than it would have been otherwise. So much clearer. You started from scratch. Starting from scratch. Blank page. Yes. We had three weeks per chapter. And then we'd have to move on to the other one. And then the other one. And it was, I used anxiety. It got me down sometimes. But most of the time, it just kept me in it. It kept me persisting. And I had a wonderful partner in Bill to, and that's what anxiety also primes us to do. It primes us to seek social connection. We don't think about it that way. We think about it adrenaline. It it increases oxytocin in our brain, oh, which wow. is the social bonding hormone, which makes us seek out social support. Oh, I thought it would be the opposite. Take you away. No, but we don't ask these questions about anxiety because we've decided it's bad or dangerous. It increases dopamine in our brain, oh. which is the feel-good hormone, which we think of as sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But really, it's the horm- it's the neurotransmitter that makes our brain work efficiently to pursue our dreams and our goals. And so when you think about that, and one person once told me, it was so beautiful how she put it. She said, I started thinking of myself as a person who struggles with anxiety. It didn't fit who I was. And I realize now that I'm a person who struggles with hope and with dreams. And that's exactly right. And that's what anxiety, even when it's painful, even when we haven't figured it out yet, it is prepared to help us pursue those positive outcomes and those dreams and those hopes. So if we connect with people more, will it lower the anxiety? Yes, there's there's great research to show that our brains are actually wired to connect to others. There was a famous study, I'll say it in 10 seconds. You were put in a fMRI machine, a very loud brain imaging machine, and you were administered shocks. <laughs> like an un- unpredictable electric shock. Oh my gosh. This is like evil scientist <laughs> stuff. But, and you were allowed to, you were either alone you, or you held the hand of a stranger or you held the hand of a loved one. And by simply holding the hand of a loved one, your, your anxious brain, they were imaging the brain at the time as you were waiting for the shocks. The anxious brain was soothed. Your brain was more efficient. You had to work less hard. You're literally, you, oh, wow. you needed to burn fewer calories to manage the stress just by holding the hand of a loved one. It's called the social baseline. We expect the support of others and anxiety points us to seek that's, that, oh, that wow, support. Oh, wow, amazing. It's kind of amazing because yeah. it's almost fractal. In anxiety, it contains its own solutions. <laughs> that, that's blown me away because it, I would have thought anxiety absolutely retracted you back from social We have events. to stop talking about anxiety that way. I mean, yes, it can. But really, the emotion of anxiety evolved to serve us. I really think we would never have built civilizations. We would never have done amazing things as humans without anxiety. It sends us into the future where there's possibility. And that's where creativity lives. And that's where innovation lives. And if we can own anxiety, it won't own us as much. Wow. What's the one thing you want people to take away from this book? Really that we're all born anxious and it's messy being human. Throw out the mental health checklists. I'm just saying throw them out because being mentally healthy is not a binary proposition. It's, it's messy, but we can learn to be anxious in the right way. It is within our power to do so, even if we struggle with anxiety disorders and we should seek therapists. We should seek all the help we can get, but we need to change our mindset about anxiety Find to really success. benefit. Yeah. And there might be a million successes now if we turn, <laughs> if when we flip it on its head, the successes that come from anxiety. It's, I think it would be, I think it can transform our lives in a positive way. Amazing. Well, we're going to do a Q and A. So I'm getting the nod over here. Um, if you have any questions, please put your hands up and someone will come over with the microphone. My son, who's 19, suffers from a lot of anxiety and you're saying it's uh, it should be turned into hope and uh, it encourages you to socially interact. But for him, it encourages him to back away from everything in case he fails. 
And it's that psychology that's kind of hampering his life, really, that if he tries anything, he's going to fail. And that makes, that is really, the anxiety is making that worse. Right. So this is where it's, and I'm sure that's absolutely the case. And But this is where the distinction between anxiety, the emotion, and an anxiety disorder is so important. Because when we can manage anxiety and find those ways of coping with these types of experiences, we can pull back the intensity of anxiety so that it can start to prime us in these, the ways we think, the ways our bodies react. But when we have an anxiety disorder, we're not quite able to do that yet. And so I truly, I'm not trying to, certainly not dismissing the reality of anxiety disorders because I've devoted my career to studying and trying to help them. But what I'm saying is that when we think of anxiety, the emotion and our experience of them as only dangerous, it will set us up for that vicious cycle that can lead to an anxiety disorder so that we can, but and any therapy that is beneficial tends to help us learn to leverage it and to bring, bring ourselves back from that vicious cycle and learn new ways of coping. And so I hope that that distinction between the emotion of anxiety and an anxiety disorder is, is I hope that the distinction I'm making is clear. Any more questions? Oh. With a lovely glitter beard. Nice. <laughs> um, I, I like what you've said about anxiety being an emotion. Um, I think that's really helpful. I've been told that a number of times and started to really believe it. Um, where I've seen it so um, so much of a problem for people is that kind of whole fear about what the outside world thinks about me. And we've talked a lot about devices this weekend and, um, you know, tablets, smartphones, etc., and how they can affect us all. And what makes me sad is how adults talk about it being a young person's problem, whereas actually in my experience, lots of adults really struggle. What would you say are the really kind of like high level reasons why that kind of addiction? What is it? What's that device doing to me that takes my level of anxiety to a destructive state? What, what's it doing? The, I'm sorry, there's a big cloud of smoke in the back. Well, there's a lot of smoke going on down Ooh. there. <laughs> it is Carfest after all. We spoke about this I actually, think, didn't we? Yes, before. I think this is a wonderful question. It's a good question. You know, I've, I spent some time studying uh, technology in, in the research lab, and I think one problem is, um, and it's really the, the sort of attention-grabbing headlines that are out there, it's all good or it's all bad, right? And so it's hard to find that nuance. What in, I, a lot of technology, particularly social media, for us, and I love that point you made, that it's not just kids, for us and for kids, is that there are these profoundly powerful and, and uh, seductive escape machines. So we can escape every unpleasant feeling, boredom, whether it's boredom, full-fledged you know, full anxiety, whatever it is, we can immediately go into this imaginary world or look for, you know, the, the you know, cute kitten pictures or whatever it is, you know, we can just escape. And so we never have to be with that, that present moment. Kids, you know, kids especially, but all of us have forgotten what it means to be bored and just with our thoughts. So I think what we're doing is we're losing the opportunities to build some of those skills to actually work through difficult feelings like anxiety because they are skills. 
their methods, whether it's breathing, whether it's exercise, whether it's talking to a therapist or a friend, these are methods and we lose the chance. So it's just a sheer opportunity cost in that sense. I think there's another part of it too, um, when it comes to social anxieties that you mentioned. It is social comparison that's happening. We all can see that, you know, perfect, uh, you know, for teens, especially all these perfect bodies and perfect lives that we're comparing ourselves to. But the thing about social media, too, is that we have acquiesced to becoming a brand, to becoming objects to be consumed, where our only value, it's a sort of hyper-capitalism, hyper-consumption, right? Where our only value is measured in how many followers and likes and reshares we have. And that makes it incredibly difficult for anyone of any age to actually know what is their purpose, what is their, uh, what gives them meaning and fulfillment. And it's just so, that is another driver of anxiety. And in the book, you know, in chapter 10, I don't, I have more of a framework than to-do lists because I'm sort of anti-to-do lists um, when it comes to mental health. But I do talk about this, you know, you know, we have to listen to it um, and let go of anxiety, but also when we leverage it, if we, when we leverage it to purpose and meaning doesn't have to be grand just to be something that gives us a sense of a achievement and con- contribution to the world that will have our anxiety by half because we know that we have we have value and something to contribute and do in the world I don't know if that answered your question. It's connection, isn't it? Without connection, what are we with as humans? Such a superficial connection on social media. And it can be amazing. I'm not actually a technology hater where I say it's all bad. It's an incredible tool, but it feels like magic to us. So we start to feel that it's this powerful thing that we can't resist. And it's been because it's been designed in such manipulative ways. But we have to be healthy digital citizens and we have to teach our kids to actually see where is it trying to take advantage of me? Maybe it's addictive. Maybe it's not. That's sort of a contentious point. But it's clearly the design of technology is not to serve us. It's to serve the bottom line of these companies. So how can we be aware of that? And how can we make healthy choices in our kids to use technology to empower us instead of to just be a tool of these companies? Well, yeah, of course. Thank you so much. That's all we've got time for. Please can we give a huge round of applause for Dr. Tracy. If you do have any other questions, she will be in the tent next door talking more about our book. Any questions, you can speak to her. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you, Dr. Tracy. All right, thank you so much for listening to Future Tense, Why Anxiety is Good for You with Dr. Tracy Dennis-Tuari. If you'd like to experience similar wisdom live, then join us at CarFest this year. There's still time. Go to carfest.org to check out ticket availability, and I would love to see you there. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.